and welcome again to Trinity. Uh, in the middle of a series, we like to do these series three times a year we call value series, where we take one of the church values and preach about it. We, we kind of want to make it really the, the focus of what we're doing. And the value that we're zeroing in on uh, for this month is uh, a value uh, number four, for those that have memorized it. If you haven't, it still is number four. And it, it says, investing time to build healthy relationships characterized by authenticity and grace. That's what we want to be about as a community. We want to be a, a community of people that are investing time to build healthy relationships characterized by authenticity and grace. And so two weeks ago we started and we thought about the fact that we love because he first loved us. The only way that we can ever have a loving uh, supernatural, as the title of the series is a supernatural community, the only way we can have that kind of a community is if we are gripped by the fact that God has loved us first. And so we thought about God's love uh, in Jeremiah chapter 3, which was just an astonishing passage to look at. And then last week we carried on and Ron was speaking and he was looking at Ephesians 5 and we were thinking about how for it to be a, a community Uh, that is a God-driven thing, a supernatural thing, something that doesn't happen just by accident, then God has to be at work, being spirit-filled, the spirit being at work in our midst. And in that passage, it talks about redeeming the time because the days are evil, making the best use of time. And so we're sort of underlining through all the messages the issue of time because as much as it's a supernatural thing and as much as it needs God to be at work for us to be the kind of community that he wants us to be, we kind of need to lean in and give it time. If we never uh, connect with anyone, then uh, it's sort of impossible for anything to happen. So that's why we're, we're emphasizing and flagging up life groups and uh, free to connect and, and just the opportunities that we have to interact with one another. But when we do, once we get together with people, that's where we want to have relationships that are characterized by authenticity and grace, and they go together, don't they? It's very scary to be authentic. It's very scary to put the mask off and be real with other people when you don't trust the way they're going to react to you. And so this week we're going to think about authenticity. Next week we're going to think about grace. The three, the menu of three that Paul was mentioning earlier uh, is something that, that is important. It, it's a deliberate choice on our part to say, let's not allow the church calendar to become this kind of monstrosity of, you know, 16 things happening in every hour of the week. Uh, really, we want to guard it and say, okay, there, there's three things. And if, if someone comes along and says, how can I plug in? There's three things. There's the Sunday church. There's life group, there's free to connect, which is, as it says on the tin, it's free space to connect with other people. How are we doing? We were just reflecting on this the other day. In lots of ways, there's a lot to be encouraged about. This is a, I feel, this is a loving, friendly community. I've been on the receiving end of that in many ways, and and I feel very blessed to be a part of this. But in terms of how could we be doing in line with the values, I suspect, we suspect that maybe we're not quite there yet in in this regard. It's very easy because Sunday takes a lot of people and a lot of effort to, to kind of do this. It's very easy to think that this is the main thing, but actually this isn't the main thing. This is kind of church central. This is the place where we can interact briefly, connect with each other, shake lots of hands, you know, uh, connect and pray with each other. There's, there's potential here, but, but it's not the place where you're going to get the deepest, closest connections. Life group is better for that. 
And so as long as we're thinking that Sunday church is the main thing and life group is kind of optional, uh, we're not there yet. And if Free to Connect is uh, even more optional, we're even more not there yet because actually life group is a better environment for close, authentic, grace-filled relationships. And then Free to Connect allows space for even greater connections. We th- thought about the Bible read-through pairing that, that Paul and Alan have. That kind of idea of getting together with people in, a, in an environment that's completely safe where you really trust the other and you can be really real with each other. That is so, so valuable. And so as we go through this month, we want to keep encouraging and inviting us. Yeah, this is this great. There's a lot of positives. Let's lean in even more and take advantage of, of the opportunities that there are. And, and let's ask God to turn this community that's not something we want to socially engineer it's something that we want God to engineer by his spirit to work in our midst and do something really really special so we're thinking about authenticity today what's the problem with an inauthentic community I think at one point uh, early on in in the life of the church we used the phrase plastic church that we did not want to be plastic with each other and you kind of know what I mean by that, the, the idea of sort of how are you fine, thank you, how are you, lovely day, just kind of surfacy and, and plasticky and masks on. And actually a lot of churches become that way, don't they? We put on our Sunday best clothes and our Sunday best smiles and, and then we kind of have to interact in a certain way. Why is that? Why is it that, that you can have a group of people and, and be together all, not all the time, but regularly for years and the relationships seem to become more plastic instead of more authentic. And what happens when that takes place? Well, basically what you end up with is three things. You end up with the feeling that, that you don't know other people. And the feeling that they don't know you. Not the real you. And therefore, because you don't know them and they don't know you, then you have this pressure to perform. You ever felt that? A pressure to have it all together. A pressure to kind of be the person whose life is working the way it should and with the, you know, all things lined up and everything perfect. And, and actually, it's hard to sustain that because it's not real. But people don't know that it's not real, so you've got to keep it going. And, and everyone else has got it together because, after all, we don't know them. And so actually, an inauthentic community can become one of the most lonely environments With all the talk of fellowship and isn't it lovely to be together, it can become incredibly lonely. How do we avoid that? How can we be a community that is genuine, that is authentic, that is real? We're going to look at a passage uh, that is really significant for this, and it's in John's Gospel, John chapter 13. And as you're turning there, let me just mention uh, the the passage right back you can, you can keep uh, looking for John chapter 13. If someone could give me a page number. And a, say again? 900. What a brilliant page number. Okay, so turn to page 900 in the, the church Bible. Just remember, uh, kind of as, as backdrop for this, why is it that authenticity is complex for us as humans? Why is it that we struggle with it? You might say, well, it's because I'm a man. You know, I, The women, they can do authentic, but us men, we're kind of rubbish. And that's probably true in some ways, but that's not the reason for it. You might say, well, it's because we're British. You know, other cultures, the Italians, you know, they're good at talking and interacting, and we're British, you know. 
kind of reserved. Let's leave authentic for the Americans. Oh, maybe not. So there's all these kind of cross-cultural kind of thoughts, right? But that's not the real issue. It doesn't matter what culture you go to. It doesn't matter what gender you are. There's a deeper issue that gets in the way of authenticity. And that is what happened back at the beginning in Genesis 3. When God created Adam and Eve, the first two chapters of the Bible come to this great climax at the end of, of Adam meeting Eve and it was all amazing and God said, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and you know, just this glorious finale to the creation. But the final verse we often forget is 2 verse 25 where it says, and they were naked and they were not ashamed. They were totally vulnerable and it was fine. And then we go into chapter 3 and the serpent starts having the conversation with Eve and Adam standing around not dealing with the issue and that whole uh, disaster takes place. And as soon as it takes place, as soon as Eve buys into the lie that she's given that you can be like God, that you can kind of be in charge of everything, as soon as she took that fruit and then her husband took it with her and they ate that fruit, in that moment we're told that their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. And they were ashamed. You see how it's kind of marked uh, in the passage that they weren't, uh, they were naked and not ashamed, but then when sin entered, they realized they were naked, they were ashamed, and immediately they took fig leaves and they sewed together loincloths because they had to cover up. And God comes walking in the garden Adam, where are you? And Adam and Eve were hiding, and Adam said, Well, Lord, I, I, I hid. I heard your voice and I was afraid, and so I hid. And there's two more references right there in the telling of the story, just in a couple of verses. I realized I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Four times in the whole passage, in the space of 12, 13 verses, it references them being naked. And I think that it's important that we kind of flag that up and see that the problem with being vulnerable, with being uh, real, with having the masks off is a problem that isn't cultural, it isn't gender-based, it isn't personality type, it goes right the way back to the fall. Ever since the fall into sin, ever since Genesis 3, every single one of us has been an absolute professional fig leafer. We fig leaf. We hide the real us. We're afraid that people will see our inadequacy, and so we cover it up. Some people cover it up with perfectionism, trying to look like they've got everything just right. Other people cover it up with an attitude of, I don't care. I'm just a you know, slovenly sloth. It doesn't matter what you think of me, but actually it does. Other people cover it with some sort of distraction technique. I won't let you see my incompetence here by distracting you with humor there. There's so many different ways we fig leaf, but we do fig leaf. And we're all very, very good at it. We like to hide the real us because we do not feel safe. And then we come to John 13. John chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples. It's a critical moment. For three years, he's been uh, preaching and teaching and doing miracles and healings. He's been doing all that, that we think of when we think of Jesus. And all the way through that, he was saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And now he's in Jerusalem. And he's come to the evening before. This is the Thursday evening. He's in the, an upper room with his disciples. And he knows this is it. This is the evening that they will remember for the rest of their lives. Because even though I've told them, they still don't get it. But tomorrow... I'm going to be arrested tonight, tomorrow I'm going to be tried, and I'm going to be killed, and they'll never be the same again. Jesus knew that this was a critical moment for the disciples. 
And so what did he do? What was it that he communicated with them that evening? It's a powerful passage, probably a familiar one. Let's look at it. There's, uh, we'll read a few highlights. Basically, he washes their feet. And then he has a conversation with Judas Iscariot, who had agreed uh, already had plotted to betray him. Jesus revealed that he knew that. Judas left. And then Jesus gives them a great commandment. So it's quite a, a fairly familiar passage, I would think, for some of us. But let me just read a few highlights, starting at verse 1. John 13, <clears throat> verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. As the story goes on, he comes to Peter, and Peter is a bit resistant, and they have a little bit of an interaction. Let's drop down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And it goes on, and and Judas is uh, kind of revealed, or Jesus reveals to Judas that he knows what his plan is. Judas leaves and heads out, verse 30, into the night. Verse 31, uh, Jesus now turns to his disciples. Actually, let's drop down to verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. It's quite a quite a passage, isn't it? That commandment was 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 just seared into their spirits, into their souls that day. And the reason I say that is because sixty odd years later, the only remaining apostle, when he wrote the letter one John. He kept referring to the commandment, the commandment that we've had from the beginning, the commandment from Jesus. And it's that one. Love one another as I have loved you. And so it made a mark. It made a difference. And and I don't think we quite get it. Uh, For us, foot washing is kind of weird. In those days, foot washing was kind of needed. If you walked around in the dusty streets where there was dust and there was dirt and there were lots of animals, then you come into a house, your feet are going to need some help. And so it's just a part of life that that the lowest person on the totem pole, the kind of servant of, of the lowest rank, would come around and wash the feet of the people who were the guests. Straightforward. Not a nice job, but a needed job. And on this particular occasion, Jesus deliberately, and there's no mistake here, this is no accident, Jesus deliberately stood up, took off his outer garments, made himself utterly vulnerable, put a towel around him, and then started to wash their feet. Profoundly awkward for someone in his position to act like that. 
It's one of those moments where we're looking on, even from a distance, going, well, good grief, you can't do that. Careful, Jesus, what will people think? Because we're so used to fig leafing. We're so used to trying to be the best that we can be or even to appear better than we are that we can't naturally fathom how he could do that kind of menial task when he was Lord of all. What was it that made that possible? I want us to zero in on just two verses that we read. Because these two verses, I think, are the key for understanding and appreciating Jesus, but also for thinking about us in our situation. Look again at verse 3 and 4. John says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, made himself vulnerable. Because of those three things as kind of the, 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 the foundation, the context, the reality that gripped him, Jesus made himself utterly vulnerable. Let's think about those three things. Knowing that God had put all things into his hands. Knowing that he'd come from God, knowing that he was going back to God. He knew what God had given him. He knew where he'd come from and where he was going. But it's not a what, where, where set of statements, really. It's a who, who, who set of statements. Jesus knew that God, his Father, had put all things, had given all things into his hands. That, that's a, a, a massive reality right there. That the, the Father of all, who gives life, who generates everything, created uh, through his son everything for his son. The the, the father so uh, delighted in his son that his purpose was to set up his son as Lord over everything. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that his father had given all things, literally all things, into his hands. He knew where he'd come from, that is, he'd come from God. He could remember that, the the dynamic reality we read later on the same evening where he's praying and he's uh, kind of uh, sentimental or nostalgic. These are too weak, really, these words. But, But he was just longing for that reality that he had with his father before the world was created, being with his father, the glorious glory, love, glory festival that was the father and the son by the spirit in this amazing uh, eternal reality. Jesus had come from that. And he knew that he was going back to that. He knew that uh, just a, a short period of time, he would be leaving this earth and he would be going back to his father. And those are three anchor points, if you like, three kind of places where the, the peg of reality are, are drilled into the ground for Jesus. And the thing that I want us to notice about those three anchor points is that none of them were in that room. None of them related to those 12 men. He was gripped by what his father had given him. He was gripped by the reality that he'd come from God. And he was gripped by the hope that he was going to go back and be with God. And therefore, with his anchor points firmly rooted outside of that moment, what happened in that moment did not control him. Just think about the significance of that. For for Jesus, that's true in that upper room. It's true at the cross. Because of what the father had done and because of where he'd come from and where he was going, Jesus was able to go to the cross and willing to go through that because his anchor wasn't in that moment and what people thought of him and and how it felt. 
He would never have gone to the cross if it was like that. And here the evening before, same truth. He's rooted, his anchors are, are locked outside of the moment. And praise God for that, because that means that we have a Jesus who died for us, who saved us, who is there for us, who gives us life. Everything's changed because of what he has done. But he did say to his disciples, he did say to them, this is an example for you. You see, he expects us to have that same experience, that same uh, practice if you like that is of having our anchor points outside of the current situation that we're in in fact we can use the same three anchor points we know that God has given all things into our hands you go no hang on a second Pete that's getting a bit carried away he's given everything to the son that's right and who are we in the gospel we're united to the son in marriage everything that's his is ours Everything that's ours is his. All of our sin, all of our failure, all of our inadequacy, all the mess that is us, that's his. And all of the richness, all of the wealth, all of the the, the wonder of all that Jesus has, that's ours. Because we're united to him by marriage. And so we have that same first anchor that Jesus had, that, that everything in the entire cosmos has been given to us in Christ. Secondly, we know where we've come from, not the same as Jesus. We don't have recollection of heaven because we haven't been. But we do have recollection of God working in our lives. If, if we can look back and, and say, you know what, God has worked and he's brought me to this point. And, and I remember when there was this and there was that and this tough time and that time. And he provided and he cared and he brought me through. And I never thought I'd make it, but I made it. <coughs> we have a history that goes back beyond the present moment, a history where God's involved if we're part of his family. And so we have the, all things given into our hands. We have the past and we have the same future as Jesus. We get to go and be with the Lord. We get to go and sit with him in Christ, sitting alongside the Father on the throne. We get to go and be with him forever with the Lord. We will see him. We will be like him. We will be with him forever. And so those three anchor points that were true for Jesus, what he'd been given, where he'd come from, where he was going, those are true for us if we are part of his family. And the implication of that is massive. It means that the, the, the fig leafing doesn't really make sense. The self-protective, I hope they don't see the real me. Actually, that's kind of bizarre now because in as much as we are in Christ, which is totally, if, if by faith we've been united to him, then it makes no sense that we live in fear in the present. But I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'll just put mine up. I struggle with it. I struggle to be in a room with people and not find my primary concern is what they think of me. Don't you feel that way? And whatever way it manifests, it's so easy, isn't it? For the the reality within the four walls, the reality within the ticking of the second hand, it's right now, it's right here. I'm struggling, I'm doubting, I'm, I'm nervous, and so I'm hiding. As we look to Christ, as we dwell on all that we have in him, as we ponder the reality that we are united to him, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and so they will become one. That is, according to Ephesians, we just looked at it in life group, 
That is speaking about Christ and the church. We're one with him. What's true of him is true for us. What he went through, we can go through. That means that for Jesus walking into a room, remember this wasn't just 12 of his closest friends. This included one who was ready to betray him. One who couldn't stand the way that Jesus was functioning, the way that that Jesus was handling things, and the way that that, that he wasn't pursuing plans according to Judas' purposes. He was right there. Jesus washed his feet. But you see, that didn't matter. Because the, the anchor points for Jesus were outside of that moment. So we might say, well, you know what? There's people in this church that I feel really awkward around, that I I, I feel hesitant to show the real me to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're probably not quite as bad as Judas. You see, it's not the, the people, it's not the circumstances, it's not the present situation that really ultimately determines whether or not we can be authentic. It's whether or not we're gripped by the truth of what the Bible gives us in the gospel. Are we gripped by what we have in Christ by what God has done in the past, where we're going to be in the future. And if those three anchor points are in place, then where I am right now is an opportunity to give myself away. An opportunity to not dwell on what people think of me. It's powerful, isn't it? It's not easy. Don't don't mishear me. Don't think I'm saying, there you go, sorted. No, this is something that we're going to be growing in and struggling with probably for the rest of our lives, every one of us, in different ways. There's nobody here that doesn't struggle with this. I'm certain of that. And yet the gospel invites us to explore what it is to be united to Christ and therefore to be able to love one another as I have loved you. Wouldn't that be amazing to be part of a community where we love one another as Christ has loved us? Wouldn't that be exactly what we want to be part of? So what is it that holds us back? What is it that that in our lives kind of causes our sense of insecurity and fear so that we pull back and so that we fig leaf and cover up? Let me just go through a few uh, different possibilities. Some of these you'll relate to. Some of these you'll think, I know someone that struggles with that. Don't worry about them. You just just think about yourself. You might say, all of them. That's fine. God loves us. But let's think about these different kind of spheres in which we may struggle to be authentic with one another and think about the fact that in Christ, authenticity is possible. And next week we'll see that with grace, it's really possible to be part of this. So let's think about the overall thing, the the big category, kind of like the umbrella, I think is the sense that we feel like we're supposed to, to give the impression that we've got it all together. That goes right back to the Garden of Eden. You can be like God, independent from him. It's amazing, isn't it, when you think back that Adam and Eve in that moment thought, or at least Eve did, uh, Adam was eyes wide open, that he had a bigger problem. But, but for Eve, in that moment, she thought she was getting offered godlike status. And instead, she got a profound, rude awakening to her own inadequacy. And ever since, we, we've struggled to admit that we're inadequate and we've continued that. I can pretend I've got godlike status. That's why we cover up. I've got it all together. I know what I'm doing. I've got all the answers. I'm okay. Thank you very much. I don't need this. I don't need that. And I probably don't need you. And that's the vibe we give off because we feel this in, kind of inner drive to appear competent, 
to appear capable. Specifically, what does that look like? Um, well, there's the, the kind of the obsession of our culture. There's the physical. We're supposed to look like something. You know, the magazine covers? There's probably a massive number of us in this room that actually really struggle with how we look physically, how fit we are or aren't. What about health? How much do we hide the health struggles? We're in a culture, especially this culture, that really doesn't like to say anything's wrong physically. Minor, minor procedure, brain transplant. We, we kind of we hide things that we, they don't do those, okay? Uh, but but we kind of hide the reality because you know just a little, just a little thing, just a little thing. I'm fine. It may be fine for five minutes, the rest of the day lying in bed, completely unable to move, but I'm fine because we want to give the impression that it's okay. I'm okay. We do our best to, to, to look. I, I tell you, ladies, you probably know this from observing men. Men, we walk past mirrors and we change shape, don't we? I, I think it's probably a very healthy thing spiritually. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of disciplines, but I think this is a, a practice we could get into every day to get out of the shower and look in a mirror and just admit it. That's not a God. Be good for us. To then say, okay, God, that's not a God, and I'm thankful that I know one. I love you. Okay, I'm going to get dressed. Please, you know, please keep getting Okay, so physically, the whole kind of uh, how we look, how we appear, what do others think of us, and we've got no idea, and thankfully we don't go around asking, because that would be awkward, but, but the reality is probably we all look better than we think we do. The reality is probably uh, we've all got worse health than we think we have or we think other people have. The, the reality is different from what we express, but we, we, we tend to cover up. But actually physical may be the easy one. What about social? Socially, we, we don't want to appear incapable of, uh, of keeping up with the banter in a conversation or, or awkward in a conversation, so we just kind of pull away from the conversation. Or maybe we, we, we struggle with friendships and so we pretend that we're okay without them. Or any time a friendship starts to blossom, we, we get a bit concerned because they're going to see the real me and they're going to not like me. And so we, maybe we pull away from friendships out of fear. There's a whole load of things that, that, that are stirring away uh, below the surface. Socially, what about fashion? The pressure of what will people think of what we're wearing? Or our homes. I know for some people that's a real issue. You know, oh, I can't let anyone come. They might see a slight mess. And it's easy for those of us that don't struggle with that to kind of look at those who do and say, oh, don't worry about it. But for those who do, that's a real struggle. I skipped over the whole issue of mental health, by the way. We talk about physical health. Who wants to admit that there's any mental struggle going on? And yet that's a reality for many people. Depression, massive discouragement, or all sorts of issues that, that are there, and yet we tend to keep them hidden away. What about relationships? It's very easy, isn't it, to give the impression that my marriage is perfect, or my singleness is no issue, or my relationship with my kids is fine, they're wonderful people. Everyone else can see your kids have issues, but, but you want to kind of maintain the, the idea, the impression that all is well with my kids, and all is well in my home, and all is well in my life. And yet if we just kind of opened up and said, you know what, I really feel like tearing my hair out sometimes with my kids. And actually there's times where my spouse drives me completely mad and I don't understand it. We don't want to go around saying that to everyone. But, but if we opened up, there wouldn't be looks of horror and shock on anyone's face. 
Every marriage is difficult. Singleness is sometimes incredibly difficult. Parenting is often very, very difficult, infuriatingly so. And yet our tendency is to try to give the impression all is well. But you see, Jesus is inviting us to love one another as I have loved you. With our anchor points outside of the moment that we're in. So that instead of worrying about what others think, we can just love. Vulnerably love. What about intellectually? We we flagged this up the other day in conversation, actually. In this church, this could be a real challenge for, for many people because there are a few here that are quite bright. And when you're around bright, educated people, sometimes different versions of brightness don't feel quite as bright. Notice what I said there. It's not that anyone's dull. It's just that sometimes when you're around educated people, they can be, we can be really intimidating, right? And you feel like, well, I, you know, I'm not as bright as they are. Now, they may be thinking they're not as bright as you are, by the way. They may be thinking, I wish I knew how to change oil in a car or something that you think is really obvious. And you know, they've got it all together. They may be thinking, oh, yeah, I, I may know stuff, but I don't know that. How would you do that? And yet in an environment where there are educated people, often it's the uneducated or less educated ones that feel intimidated and then close up and hide. I don't want to pray in public. Man, no way. I might show that I I might say something wrong. I might stumble over my words. Makes it difficult in a life group when you're having a Bible discussion. If you feel like if I say anything, it's going to be, I'm going to be showing that I don't know much. It's understandable. But, but I know for some, that's probably a real struggle. What about um, morally? Sin. In, in some ways, that may be the hardest to, to be real about. You, you know, you've been struggling all week with, with whatever's going on in, in your private life. It could be something uh, on the internet. It could be an addiction to pornography. It could be uh, an addiction to something else that's out of control. It could be you know, a food addiction, whatever. There's all sorts of addictions out there. Kind of a, a sin that's sort of out of control. And yet it's so hard to be real about that. So hard to kind of open up and say, you know, I'm really struggling. Would you pray for me? Even though we know, we know that if somebody knew it would probably help, still we'll close up and we'll hide it. And how many marriages end up exploding because something was kept secret? Where if it had been shared, there could have been healing, there could have been hope, and instead... And it's not just this week's sin, is it? For some in this room, I'm probably sure of this, for some of us, it's sins from the past. We may be doing fine right now, relatively speaking, but boy, 1974, 1993... That thing I did in 2001, whatever it is, that thing from the past, it's just kind of hanging over us. And we're scared that it's going to come out, and so we hide. Maybe we pretend that it never happened. Maybe we just withdraw so that no one really shines the light on us. Sin can grip a life, can't it? And yet the gospel pays the price for that. All of our sins, every single thing we've ever done, Every single thing we've ever thought of doing or wished we could do, Christ has paid the price for that. He's taken that as his debt in marrying us. And he gives us freedom. And he gives us life. 
And so we've thought about quite a few here, physical, social, relational, intellectual, moral. What about spiritual? You can kind of feel the pressure that your devotional life is going okay. There's this whole set of code language in church world, isn't there? How are your quiet times? Oh, you know, not as regular as I'd like them to be, but overall pretty good, thank you, pretty good. And we kind of give this sort of impression of, of, of everything's fine and nobody else struggles. What's the reality? Aren't there days where you just don't feel like it? Maybe days you don't even think about it? Days where praying seems completely pointless because it feels like you're talking to the ceiling? Maybe the struggles that you have spiritually are struggles of doubt or fear. You have fear, deep fear that maybe God isn't real or God isn't like the Bible says he is or, or God is like that but not to me because I'm just too bad or I'm too whatever or I'm not good enough. So whether it's doubts or struggles in our devotional life, whatever you want to call it, spiritually we can really feel like we've got to wear a mask. Well, we could probably keep going, but I think that's probably enough examples for now. I suspect that there's probably one or two categories in there for all of us where deep down we go, yeah, I hope I didn't let that show on my face. See, we want to fig leaf it. We want to hide it. But Jesus invites us into a relationship with him to join him in, the, in this, that, that the anchor points for the reality that we live in are not the circumstances of the day. The reality that anchors us is that God has given everything into Christ's hands and he has united us to him. God has been at work in our lives in the past and God is where we're going to go and where we're going to be. We're going to be forever with the Lord. And with those three truths firmly in place, we can walk into church, into life group, into each other's living rooms, into the struggles, into the tough times. And with those anchors in place, with our eyes fixed on him, we can love God one another what an amazing privilege that is it's not easy it's not instant but maybe it could be our prayer god would you would you grip me more and more with those truths so so that i'm less and less gripped by what people think and lord would you do something here in in trinity chippen and would you turn this into a supernatural community in this sense a community that is authentic Because what happens, what is it like to be in an authentic relationship with people? In a group of authentic relationships? Well, you know other people. There's something very special about knowing people. When someone bears their soul to you in some way, it's an incredible privilege. When someone reaches out and says, I need help, I need, you know, it's an amazing thing to, to know others. It's an amazing thing to be known by others, isn't it? To to be in in a relationship, in a friendship, in a marriage, whatever it is, in a situation where there's other people that actually know the real me and the real struggles and the doubts and the fears. I'm known and I'm still loved. And the amazing thing is this, in an authentic community, when we know others and they know us, we don't feel like we have to perform We don't feel like we have to keep up the facade. Instead, we can feel alive in a dead world where everyone is walking around in the death of Genesis 3. We can have a taste of life, a taste of heaven. And that's what we're invited to in Christ.